So we're going to jump right into John's account of the first Easter morning. And as we do, here's what I want you to look for. Pay attention to where hope shows up in the story. John chapter 20, it's in your bulletin. You can open your Bible. You can uh, pull out your cell phone if that's helpful to you and and read it uh, there. But uh, John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was, le- was still laying in its place, separate from the linens. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. A few years ago, uh, I had a chance to go to uh, Africa with one of our summit teams. I've had a chance to do that a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm richly blessed by being able to do that uh, pretty much every year. I'll go later this year. But a few years ago, uh, when I went, I realized, oh, there's a pattern that's forming. And I realized the pattern is this. When, when I go to Africa with one of our teams here, my family buys a new pet. That's what they do. Uh, we don't consult on this beforehand, but when I come back, there's kind of always a new pet in the house. Uh, and in this occasion, it was a little red betta fish. Now, you might think that this is a a ridiculous reason to to buy a new pet. And so I asked the family, like, hey, what's going on here? Like, every time I go away, you buy a new pet. What's what's the deal? And and then my kids answered me. And uh, I think it was my daughter. may have been my son. uh, But but they they said, uh, well, here's the thing. You weren't here uh, to pray for you. And you weren't here to pray with us. And so we bought the fish so that every time we see the fish, which we named Malawi, the country I was in, by the way, every time we see Malawi, we remember to pray for you, that God would keep you safe and that you would do great things and to pray for the kids that don't have food in Africa. Uh, Okay. Okay, All right, fine. Um, As you can imagine, uh, that's a lot of pressure for a $2 fish. Uh, And... uh, but the fish became really important in the family, and we loved Malawi and enjoyed watching him swim in his little six-inch cube. And, uh, 
and, and until, until one day I, I woke up and Malawi was taking a long time to wake up. And then he didn't wake up. And so my daughter comes out and she's like, what's up with Malawi? What'd you do? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. Um, and I was like, no, I just, I think he's gone. This is what happens. You know, they don't live, they don't live forever, you know, life lesson time. And, uh, she was like, uh, she was like, um, uh, can he come back? And I was like, no, that's not how it works. I mean, he's, he's gone, sweetie. And her response to this, she was unrelenting. She, her response was, well, you could try. And I was like, I don't know exactly what you're even implying here. I don't know anything about fish CPR, if that's even a thing. Um, but I think she was implying that I could resurrect the fish. And I, tr- I tried to say, no, that's, I'm sorry, sweetie, that's not how it works. He, he, he's gone. And, and this took a second. She paused. And I was like, oh, there's going to be some waterworks. This is going to be like a big deal. She pauses. She looks down. She looks back at me. And she goes, it's okay. We can just go get another one. What's for breakfast? And she walks off, right? <laughs> For Mary, when she gets to the tomb that first Easter morning, there wasn't, there wasn't just going and getting another one. It was over. The disciples all went home. It was over. Mark, uh, who is another one of the gospel writers, he's very efficient in his writing. It's the shortest of the four gospels. Uh, so his choice of words is very economical. Jesus, in the gospel of Mark, repeats something three times in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10. Jesus says essentially this, I'm going to die but I'll rise again on the third day. He said it over and over again. Yet even with the repetition, Jesus, uh, before his death, after his death, no, no no one anticipated anything out of the ordinary would happen that first Easter morning. The disciples were gone. They all went home. And the female followers of Jesus that were there at the tomb that morning, they brought expensive spices and perfumes because that's what you do to anoint a dead body. No one expected the resurrection. Everybody had lost hope in Jesus. Everybody. The resurrection was as inconceivable to the first disciples, as impossible for them to believe as it is for some of us in this room this morning. So Mary didn't go to the tomb hoping Jesus would be back or thinking that it would be okay because she could just follow another one. It was just over. Jesus hadn't delivered, and and he was gone, and, and with him went the hope of purpose and meaning and significance, salvation from all that was wrong in the world. It all went with him. Probably for some of you here, you have really low expectations for, for this service, maybe, maybe for church, organized religion, these types of things. You have very low expectations, but I'm almost certain your expectations are higher than the expectations of the first followers of Jesus that first Easter morning. And this is so different than how this story kind of started off. John chapter 20, what we just read, it opens with, while it was still dark, Early the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' followers who was there at the crucifixion, goes to the tomb. And it might be easy for us to think of this as as maybe just peripheral, temporal information, just tells us a little bit about the lay of the land on the day uh, of this first Easter. But, But John sets up these really dramatic contrasts throughout his gospel. If you read the gospel of John, he's really bold in creating contrast to, to communicate really important things. And again, this is so different than how it started. Matthew and Luke, when they open their Gospels, they begin with the birth of Jesus. What were the events surrounding the birth of Jesus? But John doesn't start his Gospel that way. John 1 starts differently. It talks about the impact 
of Jesus coming to earth, this, this cosmic impact that happens when Jesus shows up. His gospel begins this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Light, piercing darkness, breaking in, shattering darkness. That's how this story began. Hope of a new day ushered in by Jesus. But now it's dark. And John means in every single sense of the word. Jesus goes to the cross on Friday, this Jewish rabbi that so many people had placed so much hope in, their trust, their lives, that he was worth following. He went to the cross and he died. And he was buried. And that was it. It was dark. So much for hope. They had no hope that Jesus would make it through death. But when Mary gets to the tomb, the stone closing the burial place it had been removed. And so she runs to get Peter and John. John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loves. No ego problem with John. He's a young guy. He's fiery. Uh, and she frantically says, Jesus is gone. They took his body from the tomb. Again, notice, no hope that anything out of the ordinary was going on here. They took his body from the tomb. So Peter and John, they take off running. Uh, and I think this is one of the funniest uh, scripture, verses in all of scriptures. If you've, if you've uh, read John before, maybe you've been to an Easter service, maybe you've paid some attention to this. Both of them were running, John tells us, but the other disciple, talking about himself, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I have no idea why he includes this. Uh, I, I'd say he doesn't have an ego problem. Maybe he does have an ego problem. Um, but but he, he wants to, everybody to know for all of history that he's faster than Peter. Now, he was probably a teenager. Peter was probably in his late 30s. But save that, John wants everybody to know he was faster. The thing is, though, I think I get John a little bit. When we started the Waterford campus here about eight years ago, we did some gatherings just to keep uh, the, the core team together and get some excitement going. And so we got our Summit Connect groups, our small groups together, uh, and we went and had a cookout over, over in Waterford. Uh, and we played some field games, and we played some flag football and some different things. It was a really, really great day. So that was on a Saturday. The next day was Sunday, and at church, uh, a guy who uh, used to go here, he's a missionary, now he's out in Texas. He comes up to me, he's like, oh, yesterday was so much fun. I'm like, yeah, it really was. We, we need to do that more. And, and uh, he said, uh, also, I wanted to tell you, you're a lot faster than you look on stage. <laughs> and I was like, hold up a second. Like, it's, you phrased it like a compliment, but it all of a sudden doesn't sound like a compliment. And then I thought, wait, how have you assessed my speed on stage? I've never simulated a sprint on stage. Like, do my arms move slow? Like, what is going on there? So, uh, so I think I get John. I think he's faster than he looks. So John adds this detail. He, he gets there. He gets there first. John reaches the tomb. He looks into the tomb. He saw the burial cloth of Jesus lying there. And P Peter frantically runs in after, I assume after catching his breath. He runs in and, and he saw the same thing. John goes inside the tomb after Peter. And then verse 8, it says this. He saw and believed. Then parenthetically, John tells us, they still didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to raise from the dead. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. We go from one of the most superfluous texts in all of the scripture, I think, to a really, really sad one. They saw and believed. 
They saw that Jesus was gone. They believed it. And they didn't understand. They saw enough to know that God was up to something, that something had happened, and then they just walk away. And, and I think, man, that seems so odd. Why would, we, why would they do that? But I think the thing is, we, we do that as well. Maybe, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe not. Maybe you're here every week. Maybe you're just here because someone invited you. Whatever the case may be, we're really glad you're here. But, but there have probably been moments in every single one of our lives where we've had some type of interaction. Interaction with a person, interaction with the world around us, interaction with God specifically, where you know enough to know there's something more going on here. There's something more than what I can fully understand in this moment. Something bigger than I can get my arms around is going on here right now. And then the very next moment, life happens. Schedules, calendars, appointments, bills, careers, kids need attention, real life stuff. So you just walk away. Believing there was more, but not knowing what that more is. And so I first think, like, how could the disciples do that? How could they just walk away? And then I realize I do it all the time as well. So often I don't get what God is up to, so I just go about my business like he's up to nothing. I just, I just go on about life. Maybe he's not up to anything. And it begs the question for all of us this morning, have you ever, have you ever not been able to fully understand what God was up to? Have you ever walked away too soon? Have you ever gotten back to your business too quickly? Mary doesn't. Mary sticks. She, she stays outside the tomb crying. And then she looks in and the scriptures say she saw two angels in white, one at the head, one at the foot of where Jesus was. And the angels ask her, why, why are you crying? And Mary responds, they took Jesus away. And I don't know where they've put him. Essentially what Mary is communicating here is all I had left of what was good is gone. I came here to pay respects, to get close to whatever I had left of what was good, and now they've taken that away as well. And we've all felt that type of pain, that sting of a good season gone away. Maybe a, a love lost or a job lost or a prosperous season come to an end, a family member gone. And the loss of those things tend to take hope with it. But as Mary's about to find out, sometimes when we think the sun is going down, it's actually the sun coming up. Verse 14, at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And she thinks it's the gardener. And she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is. I'll go get him. Uh, she's in the dark. She's right there with Jesus. But at first, she doesn't know that he's with her. Her perception of what God was doing in the world, in her world, hadn't caught up with the reality of what God was doing in her world. Did you get that? Her perception of what God was doing hadn't caught up with the reality of what God was doing. And it might be that you find yourself in a place today. Maybe you walked into the room and, and you put your whatever Easter best on. You're trying to put on a good face, but, but, but the reality is you're in less than an ideal situation. And your perception of what is going on around you has led you to wonder if God's there at all or if he cares or if he's listening. And you might say, how is this good news? I get it. Jesus is raised from the dead. We're supposed to celebrate. But how 
is this story of Jesus, how does it matter for me because I'm struggling? Here's what I'd say. I'm not saying your struggle isn't real, that your trial, the mess you find yourself in isn't real. It just doesn't necessarily correspond to the full reality because nothing is beyond the help of Christ. Nothing is beyond his grasp. Easter reminds us that he's present. And when he comes in, nothing is so broken it can't be put back together. Though it may still seem dark, light is coming because light has come. In the decades before and after Jesus' life and death, there were dozens of, of messianic movements in Israel. There were a lot of people, dozens of people, who claimed to be the savior of the nation, who would bring peace and wholeness to a people who, who, would, who, who would move all that is wrong away from God's people so that they could live in a new paradise. There were dozens of these types of movements. And in almost every case, the, the leader of these movements, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, was killed for what they said. And after the leader's death, all these movements just dissipated. People got back to what they were doing. Everybody went home, and that was that. But there was one of those dozens of messianic movements that didn't go away. It not only didn't collapse, it actually exploded. And over the course of 3,000 years, it spread... At 300 years, it spread through the entire Roman world, the entire known world of the time. The Christian movement, that's it. That's the only one of these messianic movements that, that lived beyond the leader. So what makes it different? What makes the Christian faith different from those others of dozens of movements? Well, what makes it different is what happened after the leader was killed. See, it's unprecedented what happened before the cross. Jesus' teaching, absolutely unprecedented. Him loving outcasts, inviting sinners, dining with them. His raising of Lazarus, his healing the blind. These are unprecedented things. All the miracles. It was unprecedented what happened before the cross, but it was unthinkable what happened after the cross. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around and she recognizes him. Rabboni, she says, which means teacher there, right there. That's where hope shows up. That's the moment, not before that moment, right there, when Jesus says her name. And she sees him. Notice Mary sees Jesus on that Easter morning, not because she hoped to. Mary was, was frenetic. Where is he? I'll go get him. She's crying. She's distraught. Jesus is right there. And she doesn't even recognize him, but he says her name. He says, I know things are moving fast. It feels like the world is spinning, that you have to figure it all out and put it all back together. But just stop. Just stop for a second. Be still. Jesus says, know that I am God, that I'm right here. So this is so important to us. Easter is not a story of people getting their hopes up enough to get to God. Easter is a story of hope showing up for us. God cutting through the disappointment, cutting through the hurt, and making his way all the way to wherever we are right now. That's the story of Easter. You don't have to put on a happy face to get to God because God will make it to you. When the happy face is the only thing that's reasonable, God will make it to you. But when the happy face is impossible to muster, God will make it to you. But sometimes we have to stop long enough to recognize he's near. 
Sometimes we have to stop long enough to recognize the world will get along okay if we just stop for a minute and be still and know that he is God. I don't know where people haven't come through for you. I don't know what disappointments you're walking into the room with. I don't know where you feel like God hasn't come through for you, where you've lost hope in him, where you've lost hope in others, where the potential of things to change, the hope of that is completely gone. But Easter gives us the reason for the call of Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm for God can be trusted in his promises. That hope is in the person of Jesus that walked out of the grave and stood before Mary that Easter morning. Hope in that and that alone does not disappoint. This lie that we hear that things will never change, I guess we just have to get used to it because I guess this is just how things are. That lie is proved untrue on Easter. Things do change. New life is possible because hope moves toward us. It shows up for us. Because Jesus is rock-solid truth when things seem unfixable or broken. Hope showed up for us to put to death hopelessness. See, the thing is, no one expected the resurrection, but the resurrection came anyway. Because hope always shows up for us. So Mary runs and grabs him. This is totally reasonable response. She sees Jesus, this one that she'd put her hopes in that she thought was gone. She runs over and she grabs him. And here Jesus says something shocking. Everything he's done to this point in the story is absolutely shocking. But this is the first time he says something shocking on this Easter morning. He says this. He says, don't hold on to me for I haven't ascended to my father. Instead, go to my brothers and, and tell them this. I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. This is shocking. But what Jesus is trying to communicate to Mary is this. Don't hold on so tightly to right now, this second, that you miss what comes next for you. Don't forget, Jesus is telling Mary and he tells us, don't forget, following me means there is more to come. Your best day is not back there somewhere. Life is not best lived in freeze frame. We don't have to cling for dear life to right now or some previous time because that's all there is. That's not the case. As N.T. Wright said, because of the resurrection, there are things possible now that simply weren't before. And that matters. This is what makes the birth of Jesus good news of great joy for all people. If it had ended on the cross, it wouldn't have been. It maybe would have been another one of those movements that fizzled out, but that's not what this is. Sometimes people will ask, can you, can you be a Christian because you believe in the principles that Jesus taught, but not in the actual resurrection? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're stuck. We're fools. If Jesus wasn't raised, what are we doing? If new life isn't a reality, what are we doing here? But instead, we shape our lives around this being true, that our sin, that all sin and hopelessness have been defeated, swallowed up by a love of God and raised with Jesus. So Jesus gives Mary a task because here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say let go of what was without providing what comes next. So what comes next? Maybe you're in a place where you're having a hard time letting go of something because you don't know what's next. Maybe you don't have absolute clarity about what comes next, but we know enough. What comes next? Go tell. 
That's what always comes next. Go tell people the story isn't over. Go tell people hope showed up. And this is important. Mary is a really unexpected messenger of this truth that hope shows up, that the story isn't over, that the resurrection is true. She's a really unexpected messenger. Celsus was a, was a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, and he was highly antagonistic against Christianity, uh, and he wrote a, a number of, of pieces of literature uh, against the faith, faith making, making arguments against the faith. And one of his main arguments is this. Christianity can't be true. Because its written argument is based uh, on the resurrection. The written argument of the resurrection is based around the testimony of a woman. And we all know that women are hysterical. That's his, that's his point, not my point. I just want to see if you're awake. But he actually wrote that. And you know what? A lot of people agreed. A lot of people in the second century were like, that's sound argumentation. Which shows we always have room to grow, people. But in ancient societies, women were marginalized. They weren't heard well. Their testimony wasn't admissible in court, yet a woman was entrusted to be the first witness of the resurrection and the first teller that hope showed up. She went and told the disciples. See, the thing is, if Jesus was, or if John was writing a, a, a document to try to kickstart a movement, right? if he wanted it to spread, and if he wanted people to follow this movement that they were a part of, he never would have written women in as the first seers and the first tellers. Because there's so many arguments in his time against that, but that's the thing. That's not what John was doing. He was not writing a document to try to jumpstart a movement. He was telling the truth. And he was telling the truth about hope. A hope that shows up for us. And a hope that also sends us out for others. God says, just in case you're wondering if there's uh, equal value in my eyes, God says, in my redemptive plan, this, this plan to redeem the whole world, to set the whole world right through my love and my grace sent as good news across the entire world to redeem all things. If you're ever wondering if there's equal value between men and women, young, old, smart, slow, absolutely, God says. He says, if you're available, I can use you. See, God's in the business of sending unexpected messengers because that's what we are. We're unexpected messengers of this good news, this truth that showed up at Easter. We get to go tell the world that the central message of Easter, and Christianity for that matter, is not, hey, figure out how to find enough hope when things are hopeless. Find things to, to, to be hopeful about, even if things seem hopeless. No, that's not the central message of, of Easter or Christianity. The central message is when things look hopeless, hope will move your way if you'll look for it. God takes responsibility for it. He makes sure of it. And if we'll trust in the hope that came, the hope that rose up, we won't be disappointed. Jesus says, if you trust in me, I defeated death. I paid the price. You can come home for all your days and all your eternity. See, light keeps breaking into darkness. Whatever darkness you are experiencing, light keeps breaking into it. Darkness does not win. John 1 was right. So a good and a true thing happened that first Easter morning, the resurrection. 
And because it happened, every single moment of every single day is ready to burst with the hope of God doing new things to bring peace and joy and life into this world. And that has to include us and the people God has given us to love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that it's not an idea that we can put hope in to to somehow comfort us in times of trouble. Thank you that the resurrection is truth and that the hope we have we can put in you, in your son who defeated death, who stood before Mary and is willing to come near to us with hope. I pray for those of us that need you to draw near, we might feel you more close to us than ever as a result of recognizing the truth of your resurrection. I pray for those of us that have experienced resurrection in our own lives, where we've experienced hope in you being valuable. I pray that we'd proclaim it, that we'd be unexpected messengers to the world around us, that hope isn't something we have to muster up. Hope draws near us because you did it, because you rose from the grave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.